Hello, Trombone Internet. This is Chris Van Hoff, assistant to the regional manager of the International Trombone Festival. We at the festival, of course, are huge fans of the pod, and we are really excited to invite you to attend this year's 2024 International Trombone Festival at TCU in Fort Worth, Texas. Dave Begnosh is our host. We have the world premiere of a brand new double concerto for trombone and piano with the Fort Worth Symphony. We have the American Brass Quintet. We have late night jazz featuring a Latin jam session. Like everything is happening, all the cast will be there. It's the best hang in the world, and we hope to see you there. You can register for the festival still online at www.internationaltrombonefestival.com, and it's happening the last week of May. So go register. We'll see you in Texas. Welcome to the Trombone Retreat, a podcast of the Third Coast Trombone Retreat. Today on the podcast, we talk to Tim Higgins, principal trombonist of the San Francisco Symphony and professor of trombone at Northwestern University, as well as the San Francisco Conservatory of Music. My name is Sebastian Vera at js.vera on Instagram, and I'm joined as always by at Bass Trombone 444, the 444th most significant bass trombonist on Instagram, King of the Quarantini, Nick Schwartz Nicholas. Well, Sebastian, at least I am ranked. So I will take being 444th most important bass trombonist. So, man. Hey, if it means anything, you're definitely in the top 444 bass trombonist to me. It means something. I don't know how much, but. Hey, Nick, I have to say, and for the people that don't get the opportunity to look at your lovely face right now, your quarantine beard is a sight to behold. Yeah, I made a I made a pact with Paul Pollard that we weren't going to shave until this is over. But then I have lost a bet to my mom about a local store having Spanish chorizo, and <laughs> the since I lost it, I have to trim my beard. But I didn't say how much. So I'm just gonna just gonna make it a little less homeless. I would say your your quarantine beard's currently in the scaring small children category and progressing to. Vagrant who lost his only pair of scissors. Wait, you have scissors? <laughs> Can I have some? So yeah, thank you so much to everyone that's reached out after our first podcast. It's It's been a work in progress for a while and the quarantine actually helped us a little bit get everything organized and get into gear. But we've heard such positive feedback and it, it means the world to us. So many positive reviews on Apple Podcasts, which we really appreciate. And to that end, we actually want to start something. It helps us out a lot if you review on Apple Podcasts. So if you do leave a five-star review, feel free to write a question and we will answer it on the podcast. If you already gave a five-star review and wanted to ask a question, feel free to email us at tromboneretreat at gmail.com or any of our things on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. But yeah, we really appreciate it. And we're just excited to do this. It's been a really cool project for us. And we're excited to see where it goes. Sebastian, I think the question that most of us want to know the answer to is when's the last time you had a full head of hair? Wow. I feel like I somewhat deserve that. Um, Getting one of those cla- those classic uh, bass Tremone four 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 zingers. I have to, <laughs> I have to say, I've had so many people reach out to me that are so used to getting haircuts and ask how I cut my hair, like how I shave my head, <laughs> because they've never had to do it before. Right. So suddenly, I'm like the expert on this. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I'm happy to send you an Amazon link if you'd like. But yeah, it's it's a weird situation. And I think we'll talk about how this has affected both of us in the post show. Is that what we call it? The post show? Seb thoughts. Hashtag Seb thoughts. Well, you're there too. I know, but it just, it rolls off the tongue better. <laughs> Seb thoughts. Exactly. Yeah. So we do appreciate everyone who's tuned in, listened to our podcast and word of mouth is obviously a great way to spread this to your, your friends and family and grandma and great uncles and anyone else who might want to listen to this. But also, yeah, those, those reviews help us keep our positive presence online. So we really appreciate that. And yeah, ask any question you want of us. If you left a five-star review, we will answer whatever you ask. And we love your your opinions, your ideas. If you have anything that you'd like to hear on the podcast sometime, uh, we're all ears. This is for you guys. Yeah, I think that's it. I, I think we can hop into uh, hearing the sultry voice of Tim Higgins. <laughs> Finn. F-Y-N-N. Finn. 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 Yeah. He's already, he's already a San Francisco person. What can I say? Are anyway, you, are you doing a hy- hyphenated last name too? That would be very San Francisco. Yeah, right. No, we just gave him a different one. It's it's, it's Melon. Finn Melon. He took, yeah, he took my name. Finn so. Melon, spelled with a P <laughs> and a Z. It's silent. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Hey, thanks for having me on, guys. I appreciate yeah, it. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks for joining us, man. Yeah. Yeah. How's how's everything going? How's how's quarantine life? Quarantine life is a uh, pretty good. Um, we have a garden, so we can duck out into that, which makes life a little bit easier. But, uh, you know, it's probably like a lot of people. It's a lot of a lot of Netflix and trying not to drink before 5 p.m. and failing most days. How, how do you do that? I don't know. <laughs> I'm holding I've, out as long as I can. Is it weird that uh, that aspect of quarantine is not very much different now than it was three months ago? Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. When someone says you're a heavy drinker, if you drink every day and I'm like, oh, that's wait, that's new for some people. What? <laughs> yeah. We weren't supposed to be doing that. <laughs> yeah, sure. I need to see some proof. Uh, show, yeah. show me the show me the literature on this. I think it's different <laughs> now for musicians, though. It's it's a lot more socially acceptable to drink at like happy hour time because we don't have a concert right afterwards. Yeah, right. So. That is kind of weird to like get to seven p.m. and it's okay to get tired and go to sleep. <laughs> <laughs> it's really strange. Well, if you work in a pit, you you can fall asleep at seven p.m. too, and and go to work. It's fine. Yeah. Well, that's, there's some people on stage doing the same thing. (laughs) (laughs) What about, what about creatively? Have you, have you gotten into anything that you always wish you had time for? Uh, I imagine like a lot of people I'm starting to record at home and try to do multi-tracking stuff. I feel like a lot of the orchestra players now are kind of expected to put out content like that. Obviously we see a bunch of it now. So I've been going through my Tremont quartets that I wrote or choir pieces that I arranged, and I'm just multi-tracking and learning how to do that. So right now I'm doing West Side Story, which is fun, but I'm so new to this. Like start starting out with some light. <laughs> yeah, right. So you arranged it, right? And you know, that's definitely a rabbit hole I want to jump down. Yeah. But you so is it is it for trombone ensemble, I assume? Yes. So about five years ago, maybe six years ago, there was a San Francisco trombone ensemble which was players from the symphony, ballet, opera, and local freelancers that got together for, we did two or three concerts. Um, and around that mm-hmm. time, obviously we were looking for a rep and I decided, Hey, this could be, this is a really great group. This would be a good challenge to see if we could actually play this or even arrange it. So I went and bought a score and sat down and, and wrote it out for eight tenor trombones, two bass trombones, 
and then percussion, rhythm, and piano. Wow. And it worked out surprisingly well. There, there wasn't a whole lot that had to be cut out, which is interesting. I mean, it's hard. It's not, it's not easy. And it's, it'll show you how bad I am at bass trombone, but yeah, it's, 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 it's a, it's a piece. Well, so what are you, how are you going about it? Are you doing it in GarageBand, Logic? Is it video or is it just audio? Right now, I'm just doing the audio and I'm just doing the trombone parts. I'm going to try to get some people to to record the piano and the percussion parts, or mm-hmm. ideally one person to do each of those. And I purchased this Focusrite input-output USB thing <laughs> to record into and, and send it into my computer, and it comes with Pro Tools. So I'm using like oh, cheap... Cool four man's pro tools. I refuse to, I refuse to upgrade as long as I'm going to hold out as long as I can. Uh, and I'm just sitting in my, my studio downstairs whenever the baby starts feeding and I'll start practicing. Cause we learned that if I'm, if I'm playing while he's sleeping, even if, even though he has a sound machine, he still apparently he really fusses and he hates it. Oh no. (laughs) So I was recording something the other day and Sharon was like, Hey, listen, it's too loud for the kid. (laughs) We have, I have like three doors closed. It's too loud for the kid. Hopefully you'll start conditioning him, though. So like as he grows up, he can just sleep through trombone because he's hurt his whole life. God, I hope so. There's a hysterical video of our uh, principal percussionist, Jake Nisley. Yeah, uh, at home, I don't know well. if you've seen this. Yeah, he's got um, he's got his marimba sitting out in his apartment and his son, Bobby, comes up. And he's like, all right, Bobby, I'm going to play some Bach. And Bobby starts yelling, no, no, not, not Bach. <laughs> he's like, really? You sure you do want? Do you want me to help? Do you want to help me? He's like, no. He's just like screaming the whole time. I'm I'm pretty sure Finn's gonna be that kid. Oh my god, it's gotta awesome. be. He's he's probably a viola player. He's just hating it. Just hating it. He's gonna, he's gonna. You're gonna have a little sound shield built for him by the time he's <laughs> one years old. <laughs> yeah, or the picture yeah. of him with like the cans on while I'm practicing on top of him. He's strapped in. He's just like passed yeah. out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, his, his first sentence is gonna be like, "Can I speak to someone from the union about the the volume issues?" <laughs> yeah, no. The first sentence is, "Can I get a sound shield?" <laughs> Can I get some shit? That's right. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So, well, yeah, yeah, that's, that's cool. I think we're all doing some little sound projects here and there, you know, but yeah, everyone's becoming a quick expert in, in home recording. Yeah. Well, if anyone knows how to get rid of the mouse click, let me know so far. That's I'm stumped. The mouse, (laughs) like when you click on something. Yeah. As soon as I'm done recording, I've got like mouse clicks all over my tracks right now. That's, that's my level of expertise. Mm. You have a mouse problem. Yeah. Yeah, having a rat infestation. Mm. I would I would suggest either Brian Santero or Jim Nova. Those guys would. <laughs> yeah, right. No. Well, you came to the wrong place. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, what's kind of nice True. is Jim Jim's stuff is so good that you know we're, we're never going to catch up to that. So I can do whatever I want. Like the standard's so yeah, he's high. A jerk. Yeah. <laughs> when this quarantine happened jim was like i was built for this (laughs) we're talking about jim nova of course um jimothy overdubbed jimothy but we're currently talking to timothy um Mm. but yeah thanks again thanks for jumping on with us and we both know you for a little while but there's still a lot uh we don't know and there's a lot of people that don't know uh your history and we want to kind of get into that a little bit but of course, you know, you were at the retreat last summer and you graced us with your presence. That was awesome. Thank you for having me. And any of oh, you man. listening who hasn't gone, you got to go. Holy crap. <laughs> yeah. Thank so you. Back, we'll send you a check. We'll send you a check. Again. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And if you haven't heard Tim's recital yet, uh, it's I think it's still up on Facebook. 
probably. Yeah. And we're gonna, and we're gonna make some good high quality video clips uh, with Tim's permission. You'll definitely have to check those out. But yeah, so something that we have in common is we both grew up in in Texas, and I take you grew up there too, right? Yeah, not just high school. So yeah, we're both part of the the Texas band machine, as we like to call it. Yeah, right. I moved there when I was six, so I essentially grew up oh, there. Okay. But you you were born in Texas, right? Right. Yeah. 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 Closer. Yeah. I'm 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 from around like the Denton, Dallas area, and you're you you went to Klein, right? Yeah. So I'm I'm from Houston, like just just outside of Houston. Went to Klein High School, and uh, I was there this in the same class as Weston over in the Met. So we we know each other from way back when. Yeah. So Weston Sprott, a lot of people don't know this. You and Weston Sprott were the same year yep. in the same high school. Yes. And had the same was private like? lesson teacher. Highly competitive. Do you f- feel like that really kind of do you, you guys push each other? I think so. I think overall it was it was a very healthy thing for both of us. We're both very different personalities. So I think Weston thrives under that competition much better than I do. That's what I learned through the years. He really works best when he's pushing against something. And I think I don't work as well with that. I think it, it frustrated me more than it gave me something to push against. So I just got mad at myself, which made me want to work harder. Maybe it's a different type of working against something. But it was, I would argue, and I bet Weston would as well, that because we were there at the same time and because we were both really competitive, that it pushed both of us and kind of put, on, put us on the path that we're on. I mean, the funny thing is we were we were so competitive in high school that when it came to colleges, when we were auditioning. We didn't want to audition at the same places like we were like, I need a break. I, I can't I can't mm-hmm. do this. And so he auditioned at Indiana, I auditioned at Northwestern. And then at uh, we both got in to those places and then we would meet up over in Christmas break. We would play together. We would still get together and play duets and see what was going on. And it was like still competitive. It wasn't like, oh, <laughs> way to go. It was like, my teacher gives me this exercise. Like, well, that's a terrible one. My teacher gave me this. Well, yours is terrible. Well, it was really kind of funny. But over the years, we've developed a really good re- uh, friendship. So it's kind of crazy where it all started and where we're at now. I mean, opposite ends of the country. That That's not on purpose, believe me. <laughs> but now, now that when you said that you applied to did you apply to all different schools or like yeah did you really was it on was it like discussed or was it just uh, just a it might have been tacit it might have been tacit but i think we were well i can't speak for weston for for me i needed i needed to get away i need to go do something different and that's not because Weston. i think that just my personality by the time i got to the end of high school it was like i gotta get out of here i gotta go somewhere and I had recordings of the Chicago Symphony and people were telling me about Northwestern and I was like totally dead set. That's my school. I want to go there. So I auditioned at Northwestern. My teacher at the time was teaching at University of Houston. So I auditioned there and my siblings uh, all went to the U- University of Texas. So I auditioned there. And those are the mm-hmm. three that I auditioned for. I wanted to audition for Juilliard, but I was scared. I was scared. <laughs> One, like, oh, if you, if you don't get in, fine. I could have handled that. But I was scared if if I had gotten in and I had studied with Joe, I had heard so many stories of him being so intense. I was like, I'm, I'm too weak. I can't handle that. There's no way. And the irony is when I got to Northwestern, that's when Mulcahy was the most intense. And so somehow, like, but it was different things. Because like, it wasn't Joe, like, oh, okay, you know, I can take this. But Mulcahy was super intense when I got there because he was trying to build the studio. So it was kind of weird. You were kind of at the beginning of because there was there was that moment for a long time. There it was just like everyone winning jobs was a Juilliard student. Yep. And you were kind of one of the early parts of this wave from Northwestern, where mm-hmm. you just started seeing Northwestern, Northwestern, Northwestern. What was your experience like in experiencing like kind of the energy of that studio there? 
Well, it's it's different now. It's evolved. But when I got to Northwestern, excuse me, I believe I was the first part of the first class that he that Mulcahy auditioned. He inherited the studio from at that point, it was Mark Lawrence. And but the first group of kids that he auditioned was myself, Steve Menard, Caroline Cardes Menos, Kevin Harper uh, and Brian Truscott. Brian Truscott's another Texan who was at Allstate with us. But Mulcahy was trying to build something up from the end of Chris Afoli's time. And I think Chris Afoli, who was like an unbelievable teacher, is just very different than Mulcahy's energy, especially at that point. And so he was he was intense. There were a lot of very frequent weekly kind of getting getting read the riot act each each week. You got to get you got to get your stuff together. This isn't good enough. What's you know, why, why are you doing this? There's plenty of musicians out there. We had a lot of a lot of discussions like that with him that he would do to the whole studio. So it was intense. And we also all felt that if you want a job, you got to go to Juilliard or Curtis. So we were in this weird spot of like, well, you know, are we going to be OK? Are we going to be able to get out there? Are we, are we going to be successful? And the information we we're getting from him was unbelievable. He's an unbelievable teacher and an unbelievable player. So we're getting this incredible information. And the whole time we're thinking like, but those guys win the jobs and they're getting different information. At that time, it felt different. Uh, kind of the emphasis was different between Chicago and New York. And I remember you, you were, you know, you were hot shot from Texas. We were all there, all state together. You probably had a lot of options. What, what made you think Northwestern was the place for you? I did. I didn't know. This is going to sound really strange. I didn't know any better. I knew it was a really good <laughs> school, but I did. I had no concept of what you're supposed to go for when you go to a, a school uh, for a, a university. One of my family is a musician, so I'm kind of the first one doing this. So someone said it's a good school. I went there and there was a trombone player who was at that time, he was a freshman who I knew from Allstate. And he just said, hey, you got to go to school here. I was like, uh, OK, I hope I get in. I mean, I, I, w- I really wish I really wish I had done more homework and, and been more prepared about it. But I, I, I cannot tell you how lucky I was to to get into that situation. And it's, it seems so strange how I could have just been like, no, I'd like a state school and gone to UT or U of H and that'd have been it. I don't know. It's very strange. So, okay. Well, I, I want to hear about, cause I know, I mean, I know personally some of the people that you lived with and were classmates with at Northwestern. I'd right. love to hear a little bit of that living situation. Cause you know, as you know, I had a similar situation going on when I was living in San Francisco, when you first got there. Right. Who were you living with and what was that situation like? We had we had a pretty special group of people. And I, I mean, not uh, friendships aside, like the drive that all of us had was pretty unique. I'm, I'm learning that now that what we thought was just, oh, you, you work hard when you're in school and you practice a bunch. That's why we're here is surprisingly unique to have amongst four or five people. Yes. Yeah. So uh, I was there with Steve Menard who now teaches at University of North Texas, but he's had one years kind of all over the country and also taught at Louisiana State University before he got to UNT. And he's a really special player, really interesting person, thoughtful musician, very just honest musician. And that was a huge influence for me. Coming from Texas, which is stereotypically like just nuts and bolts, just make sure that you can play all the notes and you're okay. And here's someone saying like, yeah, that I'm bored. And like, well, how, it's supposed to be good enough. Not bored. I was surrounded by that from, with him. And uh, there was a, a really good friend of mine, a guy named Seth Cook. He's a tuba player now in the Washington Opera. And he was... He, he broke his arm yesterday. He broke his arm. Did you hear about this? 
Yeah. Riding his bike. Mm. Yeah. Idiot. <laughs> <laughs> now I'm kidding. Seth grew up doing like all the youth orchestras in New England and studying with, I think it was Chester and, and the BSO. And like he grew up in the music life. His, his dad was a huge classical music uh, buff and he just was totally steeped in, in everything classical music. I didn't grow up with that. So the combination of even just Seth and Steve was highly influential. And we would hang out all the time. We'd listen to recordings. We'd go play excerpts. We'd go play routines. We played in quartets and quintets together. And we would go down to see the CSO play once or twice a week for four years. And we just assumed that's what you did. That was just like, this is college life. Let's go do this. But So you, you'd been surrounded by kind of healthy competition and a good culture kind of everywhere you've been. Yeah, by um, total from luck. high school to college. Yeah, total luck. It's so you can't. I mean, and you you know, as being a teacher now, that you know, striking gold and having a culture built within your studio where they're they're motivating each other and they, they want to do all the extra stuff. You can't just force that to happen. You just have to have the right collection of people. So you kind of yeah hit it right on the mark. I, I'd be curious to hear more about what it was like studying with Michael Mulcahy. Yeah. He's now he cracks a lot more jokes, but when I got there, there were not many jokes. I remember <laughs> he was um, at the there was kind of like two halves of my time studying with him. The first half was it was very direct. It was very straightforward with the information. And, and he, he always had a really exceptional way of just giving you one sentence that would sum up two or three hours of work that you need to do. It was, it was really incredible. He's got a, a gift for language. So you could play something for him and he can give you one sentence. You're like, oh my God, okay, that, that's all I got to do. Great. And he would speak very poetically about music. And that was designed on purpose. He would choose what he would say carefully and it would guide you through the technique that you needed to use without you actually having to talk about it. So I don't know. We talked a lot about sound. We talked a lot about the character of the sound and the quality of the sound and protecting the sound and guiding that sound through a piece of music. And, and on top of that, there was discussions a lot about how you then craft a piece of music through sound, not just make a good sound, but what type of sound is appropriate here? What needs to happen in the music? What do, do we emphasize this? Do we de-emphasize this? What, what, what is being said? And for a long time, I thought like, why does he just teach everyone differently? And he does. He chooses what he says differently. But the content, the, the, the core of what he's always trying to get across is basically, what sound do you want to make? And what sound is appropriate? What fits the music? And, and it's a really incredible tool if you can guide that core message through all the different personalities in your trombone studio. It's an incredible tool. So we felt really empowered to not make choices for ourselves, but to kind of take up the mantle of whatever tradition was being handed to us the whatever pieces were being handed down to us like if you're going to go play mozart you can't just say well i think mozart's this he he made you really ask questions what, what what's mozart asking for here what what is the proper sound here what is being depicted what's going on in his life when he wrote this it was really illuminating so starting there um maybe to tie back what we were saying earlier it was interesting to get all of this information that seemed to be at that time different from what other schools were, were giving their students. And so our 
biased perception of what was happening on the East Coast was very nuts and bolts, whereas we were not getting any nuts and bolts. So it was really scary when we were going through school, whether we were going to be okay coming out the other end. But boy, am I glad I took that gamble. Yeah. Now, as a teacher, as a very active teacher, uh, you know, you're uh, in a position now where you are passing along the information to your students, right? How much do you see Mulcahy in your, in your teaching? Um, or do you find yourself like veering away in your own special way, but while still retaining some of that information that he passed yeah. along to you? I see a lot of influence from him, but what's been really interesting is it's hard for me to just back away from nuts and bolts issues. Because I see students struggle with certain maybe physical limitations or just they just need you directly to say, do this. And then they can they can apply it. And then then maybe I can steer them back towards something a little bit more poetic. But right. I, I don't know if that's my fault as a teacher or just maybe what I should be doing. And so that's that's a battle I have all the time. Do I want to tell this person exactly how to do it or do I want them to find it on their own? And what's been really interesting for me is since I teach at the conservatory, I have my own set of students. But when I go back to Northwestern, I get to look at lesson reports from all the teachers. Uh, and this is kind of what the student learned through their own experience of the lesson. They write down what, what the teacher said. And so I get to check in with all the information that's being delivered to the Northwestern kids. Yeah. Ex briefly explain the the model that the studio there does. because ah. They do a different kind of thing. Yeah. So at Northwestern, every student studies with every single teacher. And three of the five trombone teachers live outside Chicago. And those three of us, when we travel to Chicago, we will just put down a whole bunch of lesson times on a Google calendar and students sign up. And they sign up for the lessons all the time, whether it's with the people living in Chicago or those of us outside. Oh, my God, there's four of us outside Chicago. Sorry. Four of the five of us don't live in Chicago. Um, who, who is uh, for those who don't know? So there's Michael Mulcahy, Doug Wright from Minnesota, Randy Hawes from Detroit, myself and Chris Davis, who lived in Chicago for a long time, but just moved to Switzerland. Um, but he's commuting back and forth. So uh, that's a long commute. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, what a cool opportunity for a student, though. Yeah. So they have to one, they have to be proactive about signing up for lessons. Lessons just show up on a calendar and then you got to you got to grab them. And two, they get a bunch of information that we see as similar, but they see as different and they have to sort through it. We're all trying to get the same message across, but they have to they have to recognize what the core message is and they have to assimilate that into their playing. So I, I get to go see what Mulcahy says every week which is fascinating. And I oftentimes come back and, and it influences my teaching for the next month, or I feel reinforced with what I'm teaching here in San Francisco. So, I mean, it feels kind of strange to be at sometimes what seems to be like in a bubble of like, this is how we teach trombone and this is how we play trombone and this is our tradition. But also there's so many traditions out there. So, you know, I'm not, I'm not saying you got to play it like I do, but if you ask me if I think you're playing it right, tell you if i think you're playing it right you know what i mean <laughs> yeah i can i can relate to that you know at uh at manis where i teach and at bard and at julia pre-college pre the faculty is exactly the same at all three schools it's well 
it has three of the same people. There's John Romero is on faculty at um, Manus and Bard, but not Juilliard. Mm-hmm. But it's Weston Sprott, Damian and Damian Austin, and myself. And we also do the the Google Calendar thing, and it's very interesting. Or not um, Google Docs. Sorry for lesson reports. And it's very interesting to see how not only that we how different we are as teachers, but how similar we are as teachers, and how it's obvious that what someone did in a lesson before influences another person going forward and and maybe not even consciously it's just like you read something like oh yeah that's an interesting thing to work on with that person i'm going to try that next lesson you know yeah or i'll notice oh so-and-so said this to you last week i agree with them what have you been doing for the past five days or right right. i didn't i just just so you know i didn't hear that so that they at least get that information like so-and-so heard this but he didn't we're both right so yeah you need to sort that out yeah, it helps balance the the subjective versus objective. Like with any audition you take, you have a committee of, you know, who knows how many people with all different opinions. But there's mm-hmm. certain things that they'll always agree on, certain objective things like time and, and pitch that well, and other things. Or theoretically. 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 <laughs> I, it's, not, it's fascinating. I, I, Someone says this person played the most in tune audition and the next person says, I have so many pitch problems for this player. Mm, and yeah. I find that always fascinating. I, I always teach it that it is it's probably the most black and white thing we do. It, it, if there is something that's going to be black and white, it's going to be pitch and rhythm. But there's still so much gray in it. It's unbelievable yeah. because yeah. I've had the same experience on audition panels where I'm like, man, that person just rhythmically was like a rock. And someone else, be like, I had huge time issues. And I'm like, yeah, what yeah. audition are we listening to? It's crazy. You know, and it's like we're both right and we're both wrong. I mean, you, you can't say someone else is wrong. They're they have their they hear things the way that they hear them you know so it's, I always, it's, it's fascinating i always tell the kids though that there's moments like that where where people are going to disagree and that usually that means like you're you're doing pretty well you're doing like you're convincing some people there are definitely players though that they knock it out like there's it's not just that they played in tune it's that they understood what good intonation was or that you know what great time is as a musician Someone who can play, you know, with flexible time, but still show that they have a good control of rhythm is undeniable. But someone who can play exactly in time, for most of it is going to be, you know, well, yeah, you're good. So like when it's when it's right, everyone knows it's it's obvious. It's very interesting when it is absolute gold standard. Everyone agrees. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That's true. So so backing up in your story a little bit. How did we get from, did we, did you go straight from Chicago to DC or was there a time after school where you stayed in Chicago? So I did my undergrad at Northwestern. I auditioned for Juilliard and didn't get in. And that was it. I thought I was kind of done with school since high school. So why am I going (laughs) to, you know, go to a backup school for graduate school? And I I only wanted to go study with Joe. So I didn't get in and I thought I'm just going to stay in Chicago and I'm going to freelance. And I did a year in Chicago and I was starting to notice that for my personality, if I stayed in Chicago and just kept taking auditions and never got a job, that I I would become really dark as a freelancer. I'd, I'd be really jaded and I'd have a really hard time. And I thought I probably need to leave. I mean, I could stay. I love Chicago. I still love Chicago, but I needed to get out, but I didn't know where to go. At the time, I was dating someone who was living in D.C. and we had we had met at Northwestern. So... I thought, That'll do it. why not just go there? I don't know the area very well. 
but might as well. And so I went to, to DC and I was there for three years. I, I didn't have any gigs or anything. I just moved to town. And the first thing that happened was the National Symphony audition that Craig Mulcahy won on second trombone. So after about a month of being in town, I took that audition and got to the finals. So at least the orchestra knew who I was. I tried to tell everyone like, hey, let everyone know that I'm in town so that maybe I can get some work. Maybe I think when that audition was done, I had $25 to my name. So I had like a couple lunches and then I was done. So I was there for, for three years. Like I said, the very last year I was in DC was the year that Milt Stevens had passed away, the former principal trombone mm-hmm. of National Symphony. And he passed away um, over the summer. And I happened to be subbing in the orchestra at the time, playing assistant. And the, the easiest solution at that point was to, to move Craig over to principal. And they asked me to play second for the year. So that's how I ended up playing a year with National Symphony. And because I had gotten that one year by total chance, I was able to get invited to the San Francisco audition without having to send a tape. So this was wow. your basically your first kind of professional orchestral experience as far as something consistent was with this big an orchestra. Yes. What a, what a place that to jump correct. into. It was pretty crazy. Yeah. Now, I'd like to so, emphasize something that you said kind of in passing. Um, you said uh, that, you know, you, you, you're fresh to D.C. and there was an audition. You took it. You get to the finals and you said, hey, you know, like I made sure to let everyone know I was in town. I kind of wanted to emphasize that for, you know, the younger audience that we have that's in college or about to go to college or getting out of college, the importance of letting people know that you're around. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I'm sure you experience that still. I mean, to some degree as a teacher uh, in the symphony, that sort of thing. I just wanted to pick your brain on that sort of thing about, you know, people who do freelance and need to get their name in in the mix in town, so to speak. Yeah, I encourage all my kids to reach out to freelancers and to reach out to people in the symphony if you want to listen and just be honest. I think people are afraid to say, hey, I, I would like work. Can I play for you? And maybe I'm different than most people, but I would rather someone if if they wanted to get hired to play in the symphony, I'd rather they send me an email, say, hey, I would love to work with the symphony. Can I play for you? I'd be like, yeah, let me hear you. I mean, it would make it a lot easier than playing the game back and forth. And, you know, I wish I had been a little bit more proactive with that. But at least I was I was willing to when I was in D.C., I would go play quartets with people. And then, I, and then in that time, I would be able to say, hey, I'm free if you need anything, let me know. And people reached out to me also to play quartets. And that's actually, when I was in D.C., Bill Thomas was still in town and Nate Zagans was still in town. The neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And we got together and played trios and quartets a lot. They, they wanted to play with me because I think, because I got to the finals of National, they were like, who is this guy? We got to hear him. We got to see what, what's going on. And they wanted to hear whatever it was that I was doing. So we would play quartet. You got to see what mouthpiece that guy's playing. Oh my God. <laughs> um, and so, but I wanted to, to, I wanted to hear them. Those guys are great players. And so we have this quartet, we get together all the time. And through that, Nate Zagonks was um, trying to get rid of students. He had too much on his plate. So he just handed me, I think, 15 students or something like that. Holy crap. Wow. Just randomly. I was like, oh my God, thanks. So you never know when it's going to happen. And I, I, I try to tell kids, just be honest and be ready. And not only in those situations, are you they getting to hear you play? You're getting to be around other good players, which helps you. It's fun. 
they're getting to know you as a person. Uh-huh. They're getting to know you personally. You're probably getting to hang out afterwards. I actually, Nick and I met each other playing quartets, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. it's a, if you have an opportunity to have like a personal situation like that, it, it can be huge to develop real relationships. Totally. And you got to grab a beer. That's freelancing. You got to be able to get a beer and hang out. You don't have to be the life of the party, but you got to be someone people want to hang out with. Yep. Thank you for saying that. It's, it's, yeah. it's honest and true. I mean, it's yeah. so honest. It's like, you know, I, I, I've, I've talked to people about this before and I can't remember who said this to me. It might've been our old tuba player in the ballet, Steve Johns, who's just amazing guy. I could go on about him, but amazing guy did everything 10 times over in New York city, which is saying something. And he said, yeah, you know, at some point, you know, of course it's important how someone plays, but at some point you think about who do I want to count rest next to, <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. And there's a, tr- there's a truth to that. It's like, do I want to be around this person? You know? Yeah. Okay, great. You can play, get in line. There's a lot of people who can play. Do I want to be around you? You know? Yeah. Well, that's impressive yeah. that he's still counting all the rests. Paul does that for us. Yeah, Paul takes well, the week off. Yeah, exactly. Oh yeah, you're principal. You should not be counting rests. Yeah, not my job. Out of here. I hope they know that. Unbelievable. <laughs> so you're in D- you're in DC. You get the opportunity to audition for San Francisco. Let's hear about that uh, that experience and your transition to the West Coast. Yeah, sure. Do you want to start with the audition or or what sure? Was I'd, I'd, I'd love from? to hear. I think everyone would like to hear your experience with the audition. Yeah. What what made this one so special for you or was it, did it feel that way? Did it feel like anything normal or what did it stand out for you? I mean, obviously it stood out and it gave you a career, you know? Oh my God. Yeah. I mean, it changed everything. I think I'd been doing, I've been doing well in auditions. I still had not figured out how to, how to win one, but I had done well. I was in the finals with the Met with the one that Weston won and Cards on the table. Weston smoked everyone. Like there was no, there was was no close call in that one at all. But I was in the finals there. Um, I'd done well in audition in Sweden. I'd been national. I was in the finals. So I was, I was, I had figured out something in the preparation. The summer before San Francisco, that was when Milt passed away. Someone in my family, their cancer turned on them. Uh, There was a, there was a lot of things that happened that kind of converged at one point. And I remember that being pivotal. It almost, it focused what I wanted to do in that I didn't have much else, so I might as well work. I think that was my way of getting through it. And I became adamant that like, now's my time. I think that was the big change. It was not, I'm going to keep working and hopefully I get one. It was, it's my time. It's almost, I just decided I'm going to take charge of my future. And so San Francisco got announced. Um, Atlanta second Tremont got announced and principal in Boston got announced all in the same season. And I was born in Atlanta actually. So I thought, so like romantically, Oh, second, mm-hmm. I wanted to be a second Tremont player. So I was like, romantically, that's probably what I'm going to get, but I'm going to go after San Francisco. I'm going to go after Boston. I'm going to go after all of them, but I feel good. I feel like I'll, I should represent well. Let's see what happens. San Francisco was first and it just worked out. <laughs> so I ended up not going to Atlanta or Boston. I didn't see the need to roll the dice and not get it and then go be a total head case. Like, but you got this, right. you didn't get that. Or what if I got those jobs and then San Francisco's angry and I'm walking into that. It was a whole thing. I was like, I'm just going to do San Francisco. So for, I mean, younger people that haven't gone through the process yet and people that don't take auditions that are listening process wise, you know, the fact that you, like you said, you had this major orchestra that you'd been working with consistently on your resume. Did that get you, was there like a tape round that you didn't have to do? Or 
did it kind of help propel you, like give you kind of a leg up? I think so. With our orchestra, we don't tell anyone flat out no on the first the first round of, of the resume round. You either get accepted or you send in a tape. And the tape, I know it sounds awful on the other end. I remember being really mad about having to send tapes to like Cleveland and things like that. But it's, you can look at it as, look, if you get in, come out, spend the money. Let's hear you. We want to, we want to see what you got. But if you don't get in, don't spend the money. Like if, if you're not ready for this, we're, 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 we're helping you as much as you're helping us. Like this is fine. But I was able to then get into the audition without having to do the tape round because I was already in a big orchestra and I had good orchestral experience in the auditions. So I skipped that, which was obviously a big advantage to get into the audition. But so going out to take the audition, I'll give you I'll give you as much as I can remember. That's probably safe to, to share about the audition. Um, <laughs> the um, the very first round was a handful of excerpts, but right at the top, they had every player play with piano, play this movement of a Corelli sonata in F major. And I had, man, I was trying to prepare absolutely everything as best I could and be so so overly prepared on it as much as I could, ready for anything that they threw at me. For some reason, this is, this is very, very stereotypical Tim Higgins. My wife would laugh at this. It didn't occur to me that I'd play with piano. And so the very first thing we did was... I walked out, I saw the pianist and the pianist looked at me, who'd been playing this all day and said, so is there anything I should know? And I was like, I don't even know how this goes with piano. So oh, let's see what happens. Yeah, because I never listened to it. I just played like, well, Corelli sounds like this. It's probably like that. I didn't do my homework. The guy looked at me like, are you an idiot? And so I got out there and I went to go tune to the piano and I was sharp. And I couldn't get it, the pitch down. That's that was my perception. I was like, "Well, that's it." I played through played through the very first thing for them, sharp the whole time. And I thought, "Okay, you're done." So then I um, played the excerpts and kind of walked off, like, "All right, that's it." And I talked to Paul about that years later, and he kind of laughed about it. But I guess the pitch wasn't as bad as I thought. But it probably took the edge off playing the excerpts. Like, well, I'm done. I might as well just play these and get out of here. Probably helped out. It's amazing what we what what we hear and what we diagnose about how we sound versus what other people hear sometimes, right? Oh my god! Or the inver or the inverse is true as well, depending on the player, right? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> I still remember the the first time I heard you tell this story, and I I encourage you to tell the participants at the retreat the past summer. But something that a story I, I love, and I tell my students, and I'd love for you to talk about is the final round you had, which was a kind of unique thing that the San Francisco symphony does Yeah, experience there, your mindset there. Yeah, sure. Usually our orchestra will bring people back for a whole week of work so that they can work with them, people that they're interested in finalists so that they can see how they work with the orchestra throughout whole, a whole subscription week. But because Boston was having their principal audition before they could schedule a trial week for, it was Toby often and I were the two finalists. They, decided to do something different where they brought Toby and I back early before the Boston audition happened for just half an hour each on separate days where we played excerpts with the orchestra. And so we both had to prepare, I'm going to try to remember all of it, Bolero, Miraculous Mandarin, Sibelius 7, Mahler 3, and Bruckner 8. And in half an hour, we just sat down and blew through big excerpts from that with the entire orchestra. So the first thing that I played was Mahler three, and hmm. we did the first solo. Yeah, right. We did we did the first solo, 
I can't remember if we did the second solo right now. Oh my God, we played the third solo. And remember, the trumpets miscounted right at the beginning. <laughs> and while I was they're, to, they're just testing you. Yeah, right. At that point, it was still Glenn Fishtall, who was still mm-hmm. acting principal. He's trying like yelling beat patterns to the trumpets while I was trying to play. <laughs> but anyway, so there was there was that. Remember, we played Bolero and I played through the solo and Michael said, uh, MTT says, oh, great. Okay. Now um, do something different and just started conducting. Didn't, get, didn't even give me time to think about it. I was like, uh, okay. I have no idea what I did. Testing. Uh, we did, yeah, exactly. We did Miraculous Mandarin. Uh, we played through the duet, the muted duet for the first and second trombone. And Michael started to give me instructions and Paul cut him off. Paul raised his hand and it was like, Michael, Michael, hold on. And Michael stopped and Paul handed me a different mute. We played it again and Michael goes, oh, okay. And then we moved on. I was like, oh, thanks, Paul. And then we did Sibelius 7, and we played the first solo. And then he goes, great. And then we skipped to another part of the piece. And again, this is just my idiocy. It didn't occur to me that we'd do something else. Why would you do something else from this piece? You do the first solo and you're done. And so I sight read the second solo, not really knowing it. I was like playing it and going like, oh, this is minor. Oh, my God. Oh, geez. I was freaking out. So sight reading on the audition. And then we tried to play... Bruckner 8, but had about 20 seconds left. So we put like two chords of Bruckner 8 and we were done. And that was it. Wow. And then I hopped on a plane and went home. So, so there, there's something different about, you know, it's nerve wracking enough walking on stage, seeing a screen up there, knowing who's behind it, or even if they bring the screen down for the final round. But you're having an audition where the entire orchestra is sitting on stage with you. The entire orchestra knows you're auditioning mm-hmm. entire orchestra is judging you yeah what what was going through your mind what was going through my mind was oh my god this is so freaking awesome i cannot believe i get to do this i would say there's there are two mindsets i took through this audition that i would absolutely do again if i took another audition and encourage anyone to take so when i was playing on my own behind the screen uh, or even when they brought the screen down it was just me i switched my mindset from i hope this goes well and all the self-evaluation that we do towards this is a recital and I love this music. I love the way that I chose to play this music and you guys are going to check this out. And so it, it changed the energy of the room. I was in control of it. It wasn't, God, I hope I get through this. It was like, check this out. And that conviction came through, I think mainly because of just the mindset, not, not all preparation. And when it got to the section playing, we did section playing with just the section, the low brass section in January. Then the orchestra round was in February. I remember thinking for the section playing round, like, this is unbelievable. I get to play with these guys. Are you serious? Like, I, I'm not going to get the job. Why would they pick me? I, at least I get to do this. And I'm going to have fun doing this. And then the same with the orchestra. It's like, I'm going to do my best. I hope I get the job. But holy crap, I get to walk away from this saying I got to play with the San Francisco Symphony. So I might as well enjoy this. I think that changes the way that you make sound and the way that comes across to people. You approached it with like a feeling, what it sounds like is a feeling of kind of like gratitude and no expectations and being present and just kind of like, I'm going to do my best in this moment and I'm going to enjoy it. I'm going to be my best version of myself and Mm -hmm. whatever happens, I can't control. I mean, yeah, sounds like the perfect mindset. It worked out pretty well. And I'm, I'm trying to do that in performances now and in recitals and masterclasses and all that. And I have a certain amount of laziness. So it's easy for me to kind of let go of 
perfection in certain moments. So I know that I'm not going to be a perfect player. I know I'm not going to, I'm not going to bat a thousand on everything. And so why don't I just do the best I can and learn to live with whatever the result is. Mm. And hopefully I get better and better. That's the, that's maybe the, the healthiest way that I can go through this. So I'm trying to remember what, was this uh 2008 that you started? 2008, 2009 was my first season. Okay. Yeah. So this yeah. is when you waltz into my life and into my heart. Yeah. Hey, oh. Yeah. I, so I was living in San Francisco from 2006 until 2010 and Tim won the San Francisco job and um, I was freelancing around the area. But my roommate at the time was one of Tim's best friends and old roommate, Steve Menard, Mm -hmm. um, who he mentioned, who he mentioned earlier. And so Mm -hmm. Tim and I started actually hanging out in 2000, 2008 Mm -hmm. uh, because we would have fires in our, we had a trombone house of our own with who was there at the time. Colby. Right. Colby Wiley, who's still out there. He's still in the house. Um, Yeah. And uh, Luke Sodergren, who's not playing anymore, but he was there. And, and Steve and me. Or there was one more person. It was, it was Jake, Jake Harris. Jake. Jake Harris. Yeah. Yeah. So we would play quartets and do the same sort of thing. Tom, uh, Tim was talking about, but we would also have fires and Colby and I brewed beer. So he used to come over to my house a lot. Um, <laughs> yeah. And, and we and we became friends pretty quick. That was that was a good time. Yeah, we have some good photos of us in Christmas hats playing Christmas quartets. Actually, my wife and I started dating. We have a picture of that. Oh, please send that to us. We'll post it. Oh, God. That's fun. Yeah. (laughs) Also, uh, (laughs) I'm sure you saw this probably about, oh, I don't know, a couple weeks ago. Steve Menard shared that video of us playing quartets in the Phoenix, the bar in the Mission District. Yeah, in the back. Um, Yep. So that's great. a lot, right? Didn't well, a lot? there's a little backstory. I'll, I'll give it quick if you don't mind. There, there was, there still is a thing called classical revolution at a bar called Bar Revolution. Is that that's what it's called, right, Tim? Rev, revolution Cafe, the Rev Cafe. Revolution Cafe. There we go. Yeah. So it, it's basically an open mic night, but for classical music. So you'd show up and play whatever the hell you want. Play with a string quartet. Play with you know. We show up sometimes and play trombone. We played trombone. Quartets. I played a brass quintet there once. Were you, were you mm-hmm. playing in that? Probably with Jessica and probably Mark in a way. Yeah, yeah. We I, we Hoffman. read some brass quintets for some reason. Yeah. <laughs> it sounded like a good idea, but it would surprisingly, which is awesome. It, there were so many people that would show up to play that there would be this long wait, and I can't remember if it was you, Tim, or Steve, who had the idea of, well, why don't we go find another bar that will let us play, <laughs> and play trombone yeah. quartet so we can just like have fun play quartets in a bar and drink beer yeah and we, I think, we found phoenix and we yeah. found the phoenix i think someone just walked up to the bartender and say can we play trombone quartets back there and being san francisco they were like sure man like no yeah. problem i think that, that was me i walked up and said do you mind if we do that and they're like yeah go for it and after like 10 minutes we had to go back up to the bar and be like do you mind turning the music off like we're, <laughs> we're giving you music back there and they're like, oh, yeah yeah and they never would <laughs> yeah yeah but they would give us some beer which sometimes. is cool yeah it yeah sometimes fun. but yeah we did that i mean i want to say we did that oh i don't know five ten times is that probably, probably about right we tried to make it a sunday night routine as best and we could th- there were a couple times where like you would show up and uh paul welcomer or uh i don't think john ingle ever showed mm-hmm. up because he lives 
further away. But uh, maybe Jeff Budin showed up and um, Scott Thornton, Hall Goff, yeah. like all the ballet and opera and symphony guys and a bunch yeah. of freelancers from the area. And we would just rotate books. It was really, it was a cool scene. Yeah, yeah. There's something about playing for an audience who has no idea who you are and they're there to drink and have a good time. And you learn so much just by like, we have to entertain these people. They yeah. just want to have a good time. And you realize what, what's important, right? I also, or at the very least, not piss them off. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's also interesting what pieces work and what don't. Because sometimes something like like the, the Beethoven dry quality, they surprisingly worked sometimes. People were, were into it. I, I yeah, couldn't you, believe it. And then, you know. You think that would be a buzzkill. Yeah. yeah. You play something upbeat like the Bozo and they're like, oh, God. Killing me. <laughs> But yeah, exactly. That's fun. It was a ton of fun. I loved that. Yeah. What what is what a strange or an awesome period of time. You know, being in San Francisco, you know, to me, I'd be curious how you see it. The way your orchestra is presenting itself is kind of how you would want the San Francisco Symphony, an orchestra in the city of San Francisco, a very progressive thinking, a very intelligent, a very young professional centric technology driven city. That's how you'd want this orchestra to be operating. You do a lot of creative things, a lot of creative programming. And and one thing I'd love for you to, to talk about, too, is something that really stuck out to me that you said this past summer. I, I really love this analogy you made about... So we always have these bonfire talks where you know students can hang out and ask any question that's on their mind. And, and a student asked what's on many people's mind, which is, you know, what do you think about the future of classical music? Are things declining? And you had an incredible answer and everyone was really inspired afterwards. And especially now with so much uncertainty going on and especially... I'll, oh man, what was I'll my just, answer? Well, <laughs> it, my, fav, my favorite part was the analogy you made to fine dining and how people yeah. will spend a lot of money for Roughly. that sense. How are you seeing all of that right now? I guess um, we're very fortunate out here uh, for many reasons that are all in there's a stupidity of riches with this orchestra right now from the board to the admin to the musicians and that makes a whole world of difference when everyone is on the same page with being doing this for the right reasons it makes it makes the negotiations go a little bit more easily especially in a time right now there's a lot of orchestra uncertainty because of the the pandemic and all so you need everyone to be pointed more or less in the right in the same direction our orchestra tries to put media first as, as much as it can tries the keeping score is a great example of, of putting media first starting its own uh, record label when classical music was not being picked up or continued by a lot of record labels um we said well why don't we start our own which sounds ludicrous but at the same time it's like well let's do it well let's let's at least try and if it sticks then it sticks so we're we're a little bit more comfortable with risk which is which is a huge benefit MTT will think outside the box and do really eclectic creative programming. We did a John Cage festival and it was packed. And wow. we, what we learned, we, we took data from that. We figured out is that the people like John Cage, the same people that like John Cage will only go see John Cage. You're not going to come see Brahms, but the same, the people who only want to see Brahms aren't going to see John Cage. So we take that information and we figure out what we need to do with it. Uh, so you know, I'm I'm really proud of our orchestra for trying to think forward as much as it can. It also is very honest with the realities of living out in Silicon Valley, where the nature of tech companies is so fluid that 
they don't have the same ability to be deeply embedded in the community and to give back to the community the same way because they could be gone in no no time. They could be sold in no time. They could go under in no time. So this is a very different relationship to the big big uh, companies out here. And so we have to navigate that. And we have to be honest about it. So I, I, I'm very proud that our orchestra thinks about those not just as impediments to what we need to do, but as obstacles and challenges to 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 try to weave through the business. And I, I mean, to your, to your point earlier about the fireside chat over the, over the summer, I'm actually more renewed in, I think, the importance of classical music as of late with all the creative content that's going out. As much as I'm, I'm opposed to giving it away for free, I'm really skeptical that people are just going to get used to that way of consuming our media and it's going to eviscerate everything. And I found the opposite is probably going to happen. I have a little bit more faith in, in what we do. I believe that this is probably what you were talking about earlier. People take music, they consume music in a similar manner to the way that we consume food. It's absolutely a diet. And you can have, there's bad music out there that has very low caloric intake for your for your spirit. And people will experiment with different types of music. And hopefully they'll find something that feeds them a little bit differently and nourishes them in a different way. And that starts a journey towards really healthy music consumption. I'm not saying everyone has to listen to classical music, but why people consume music and what they get out of it is a big part of the music culture and why why people are, are tuning into what, what all these artists are doing. I think the caloric intake of classical music is very, very high. If you can, if you can get past how bitter it tastes at the beginning, it's going to be bitter to taste all these green vegetables. But once you realize what it does for you, it's, it, it's life-changing. I say that as a Texan. So mm-hmm. like I'm, <laughs> I, I thought you should slab it in cheese all the time, but once you eat it fresh, it's, it's it's something very different. I found that people are reaching out to things that have more meaning right now. They're enjoying staying connected as best they can. They're enjoying those in like almost little snacks. Uh, these little videos that you get of your orchestra members playing duets or, you know, sitting around at home practicing, saying, I can't wait to get back to work. I mean, those are great. And I love those. And I want to send that, those out there to our audience as well. but. There are a couple of little recording projects that I've been doing and I've shared the music just a little bit like, hey, we're doing this, check it out. And to see someone get that music, that recording, see their reaction, it's different now. People are missing the the depth and missing the, the connection live and, and experiencing it on their ears in, an, in a tuned acoustic. I think people want to go have that high quality again. I think they're realizing what the distance and the convenience, how negative that can be in the long run. I don't know how it's going to be a year after everything gets back to normal, which who knows when that's going to be. But there's definitely going to be an initial rush to go be human and not be cloaked in technology. And people are going to yeah, want to, go, to, to plug back into something that's very personal. Yeah, and I, that's what eat, we've been doing all the time. Yeah. So, yeah, I really... I really um, enjoyed that that food analogy it just made so much sense how someone will people will go make reservations two months out to go to a really nice restaurant to experience a high sensory experience with one of their senses with with taste yeah and once people can kind of realize that you can have that same experience by turning your phone off and coming into an incredible acoustic a room designed with with acoustics in mind and hearing all these instruments of where 
every sound you hear, there's a personality behind it. Yeah. It's just once people can kind of realize how special that is. I mean, we realize it and a lot of people do, but um, the more we can sell that, I just thought that was a really cool way of looking at it. Yeah. I, the the one last thing I'll say about that is the, the series that we started called Soundbox has been fascinating. The symphony basically took a big rehearsal space that doesn't get used throughout the year, except a handful of rehearsals by the orchestra and a lot by the ballet for half of the year. But we have the, this rehearsal space for half a year and we don't know what to do with it. So they converted this into like a club. They brought in a sound system to create an artificial acoustic that's like infinitely tunable. They build stages that are different for each concert and they put chairs and sofas and bars and special lighting up and it turns it into a club. And people come in two hours before the concert. They line up around the block for an hour before that. They'll come in, they'll get a drink, they'll hang out. They'll sit down and kind of unwind from the day. And then there's a regular concert that happens that's two, two and a half hours or something like that with as many intermissions as we'd like. And it's eclectic, sometimes very avant-garde programming, and sometimes all the way back to like Monteverdi. Uh, we'll program anything in there with any instruments. And you are three, three feet away from the performer. Performers walk right by you to get to the stage. You can chat with them. And there's always whoever curates the program each time we do this. We do six programs of these a year. And there's a curator for each program. Whoever curates the program usually speaks to the audience as well. So it breaks the fourth wall. It shows that we're all human. It explains music so that anyone who doesn't know what's going on can get something out of it and can walk away nourished. And it comes to the environment that people are more used to. And we found that you can play anything. You can you can program anything. People, uh, one of the things that we encouraged with this uh, program when we rolled it out was that we don't know what the format is and we don't care what the audience does. So if they want to drink and chat the whole time, they're going to drink and chat the whole time. And we found that the audience is dead silent, no matter what the piece. Dead silent, completely wrapped. It's fascinating. Speaking of speaking of drinking, you are a bit of a a cocktail aficionado. Is that is that a good way to describe it? you'd like those are your words <laughs> it's documented on on the youtubes they made it look the really good. yeah those if, if anyone hasn't seen those the, the promotional videos that the san francisco symphony is producing for like individual players is so cool drone footage and yeah that stuff yeah, one's cool. super cool yeah i wanted to you know it's interesting the san francisco symphony has obviously with the soundbox program program really woke up people around the country because i mean now the Philharmonic has uh, New York Philharmonic has uh, what they call their nightcap series. And it's, it's a very similar thing. It's not in a, I don't think it's in a, a cool club space like that's designed yeah. specifically for, but they do what they can. That's like that. That's, and it's, uh, they're obviously saying, Hey, this is working, you know, and, and in this time, no arts organization can afford to say, well, that's not for us. That's not what we do. It's like, if an audience is coming, Hey, we're going to try it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. You said it says sells out really quickly now right oh my god so i think the first time they put tickets on sale they did like they put advertisements around um the neighborhood on like street chalk like soundbox is coming and like that was it (laughs) (laughs) it was crazy and they put up something on instagram like soundbox is coming and then they just said here's a program they didn't put the program they just put the name of the program up which is probably like you know masters soundbox and and it sold out it was all online and there's, I think, 400 tickets or something like that. It sold out in, I think, 15 minutes, maybe 20. Wow. And each time it sold out sooner and sooner and sooner. So when I, I did mine 
My Sandbox that I curated was, I think, the third season. And mine went on sale and sold out in, I think, three minutes. Which is like unheard of in classical music. Did they know you were going to play the trombone? I had no idea. And so the, the big, beginning of both con- both concerts was like, hey, sorry, you've been tricked. Just so you know, <laughs> Got him. you're at a trombone recital. So <laughs> <laughs> I think every trombone recital should start with that. You've been tricked. Yeah, it's a, always <laughs> apologize. Lead with apologies. <laughs> <laughs> so, OK, just to kind of move forward. So we've gotten to where you came from, how you got to be the Tim Higgins. But one thing I wanted to talk to you about, which I think is freaking awesome, is the next season you're going to be performing your own trombone concerto. Is that right? In this upcoming yes, season? That is correct. That- yeah. Assuming we all get back to work in at the end of October, I'm going to play a concerto that I wrote for myself. So what what is the format of this concerto? Is it is it how many movements can or how much you want to talk about it or do you want to keep it veiled in secrecy i, I don't know how mind. many glissandos are in it <laughs> one two three, two i think i'm happy to talk about it there's not much to say about it but it's a traditional kind of classical form concerto so opening movement sonata middle movement lyrical slower and lyrical and last movement a rondo the idea of it is well this is kind of interesting so the orchestra approached me back in january to write this and they kind of gave me the option we were talking about doing a concerto uh, in October, and we were batting pieces around, and MTT suggested, why don't you write your own concerto? And this was a month before our son was born. So I thought, I don't think I can mm-hmm. write a concerto and raise a baby at the same time. So I ended up saying yes, because I'm an idiot, and, <laughs> and talked to my wife and said, I'm going to try to write this before our, our son gets here. And hopefully, you know, I'll get far enough into it enough that we can handle the, the remaining six months or so until it until it's due and I can just write sporadically but I ended up writing the whole thing in about uh three or four weeks amazing um wow and, and it was bizarre I mean I've never had that quick of an output and I didn't think that it was low quality as it was coming out um, I was really happy with it I started sharing it with some people and they were pretty happy with it too so I was like oh my gosh this is this is unbelievable right now let's let's keep going the piece is I don't know eclectic it's I kept thinking about the Ravel piano concerto because I love the piano concerto in G major. I love that yeah. concerto. Um, awesome. I used it as a lot of inspiration and this piece sounds nothing like it. The only part that sounds a little bit like it is the opening. And the opening has at least a reminiscent orchestration to that Ravel piano concerto. And from there, it goes in a very different direction. The piece seems to be a mix of my at least the first movement, my expectation of what it's like to be a parent. Hmm. Um, the middle movement is a nocturne, and it was my expectation of trying to sing a lullaby to a, a kid who's just not having it. I'm trying to put the kid back to sleep. <laughs> it's, it's dark. That doesn't is the best, not, not the best analogy, but it was, I wanted to do something like that. I, I had written a, a lullaby a little while back when I found out my wife was pregnant, and I used that. And so that would be really cool to bring my my kid on stage while I'm playing. Hmm. The last moment is wow. just a rock'em sock'em rondo. And yeah, I'm I'm super excited about it. I can't believe the opportunity is here and I can't believe I wrote it. Because now that I have a kid, I was like, I could not have written this thing. There's no way. And and when is it set to premiere? So this is gonna right now it's slated to premiere the very last weekend of October. So like May 31 and November 1st. Wow. Yeah. yeah. We'll, we'll cross our fingers for you. Yeah. And yeah, there's, I'm going to, 
I'm gonna try to make it out there if I can. That'd be amazing. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I mean, it's, yeah. when I first read about it, I looked, just thought, wow, that'd be so cool to hear this. Because I think it's just so amazing. I mean, I, I, I don't know if anything like this has been done in a major orchestra that I can think of uh, for, for trombone, at least. I'm sure it's been done by, you know, oh, violinists or clarinetists or something like that. Yeah, Christian's played his own piece before, but not like right. a member of the orchestra gets to write. Yeah, that, yeah, that's kind of what I was getting at. Yeah, this is yeah. very, very MTT. He's so supportive of people that he's like, it doesn't face him to 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 roll the dice on something like this so i mean i'm unbelievably grateful for that support yeah and you always call him that to his face right you always just call him mtt um, what do i call him i think i call him michael i wonder if oh, i wow. i wonder if how how progressive in san francisco that's, that's what he goes by goes by michael it's amazing well we probably unfortunately have to wrap up but okay. i was kind of circling back to i was just curious with kind of fancy cocktail you'd be making this afternoon Ooh. I'm on what I call the quarantine edition of cocktails, which is looking at what bottles I have left and seeing what I can come up with. <laughs> uh, the cocktails are terrible these days. Um, <laughs> it's, it's just it's some warm creme de menthe and like a, a little bit of bitters and yeah, it's, a shot of whiskey. <laughs> Last night I tried to do a variation on a Negroni and it did not work, but it's quarantine. So like it's going to taste how it tastes until that glass is done. That's what I've learned. Hey, you know what, Tim? You said it didn't work, but it worked at the same time. You know what I mean? <laughs> I mean, it worked in its truest sense. <laughs> I have slated for tomorrow to brew some beer so that I'll be okay. So I'm going to brew oh, that well, tomorrow. Awesome. Doing a, an English style bitter. I'm calling it a quarantine SB. Oh, quarantine SB. Gotcha. Yeah. yeah, I love ESBs. Uh, there's a new brewery here in Michigan, actually, I'm, where I'm quarantining. That uh, where the retreat is, that a new brewery that opened up that has an amazing ESP. Um, I have one last question for you to kind of bring it back to trombone a little bit. Um, What is I kind of want to get a Tim Higgins hot take on what is the one thing that young trombonists do that gets under your skin? And what's what's one thing that they should do more of that they do not do? Oh, man. Boy, that's a question. What do young trombones do that can arm skin? I mean, where to start, Nick? Oh, my God. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> you know, I, I get bothered now with, with the amount of information that students have available to them. I get bothered when, when someone seems to be only playing the instrument just to, just to execute. It really bothers me. Just to play. Mm. Mindless playing. And I don't, you know... As a teacher, if, if I feel like someone's just trying to get through it and is, isn't even thinking about making a phrase, I mean, that happens all the time. And it happens with me, too. But if, if I say, OK, what are you trying to say here? You know, what's the music here? And they're deer in headlights. Fine. Again, that's fine. It's my job to, to help out. But when you start explaining the importance of it and a student looks at you like, what are you, what are you talking about this for? What's going on? <laughs> Who cares? That that one that one gets under my skin so much like the. The reason why we're doing this should be at the forefront of your mind as much as possible. And if someone's reminding you, if your teacher's reminding you, you shouldn't be like, I don't care, whatever. I'm surprised how often that happens. Like, it drives me nuts. I think students need to listen. Wait, let let me explain this a different way. Very quick backstory. Years ago at the Bicorni Seminar, it coincided to like the week after the International Trombone Festival, and both were at the same place. This is at the Redlands. I don't know if anyone remembers this. And something happened, and someone was not able to make it out, one of the faculty members, and I can't remember what 
who it was or, or what the circumstances were. However, Ian Bousfield happened to just be like vacationing in LA at the time. And so he agreed to come over and do some classes. He didn't play anything because he left his horn, but he, he at least did some master classes and things like that. And we had been spending a lot of time at the seminar with the students talking about making a great sound and knowing what great is, not just stabbing at what you think great is, but knowing what great is. And Ian asked all of us in his master class to offer him any questions and to try to stump him. And so I thought, what would be really great? One, if I could stump him, which I couldn't. But two, what would his response be if you asked him what what great sound is? Because, I mean, what an opportunity. This guy's got an unbelievable career, an unbelievable sound. He's, he's a monster player. Oh, my God. And so I, I prefaced it. I said, a lot of us were talking about greatness and what a great sound is. And how do you know that you're making a great sound? And he stopped for a second. He said two things. He said, one, he said, I don't play baseball. I don't know baseball. I don't know the rules of baseball. But if I go to a game, as soon as someone hits that ball, you know if it's a home run or not. You hear the crack of the bat and you just know. Even if you don't know baseball, you know that that's going to be a home run. So that's kind of interesting way to put it. And then the next part was the part that I thought was the most important. And this is what I would want students to do more of. Because this illuminates everything. Kind of like what we were saying earlier about you can have really good pitch, but when pitch is gold standard, everyone knows. This, this goes to that point. He said, I can listen to someone or I can listen to a sound or listen to a musician, listen to something out there. And I can understand it in my head. And I can understand its beauty in my head. But I know that it's the best when I understand it in my heart. And I thought that summed up great sound so succinctly because it didn't put a tradition on it. It just said, if you feel it, if you can sense it there, then you know that it's beautiful and you know that it's great. And it, I wish more students would approach their practice, the way that they consume music and the way that they perform, trying to get that buzz in their heart, try to get that reaction. Because then, I mean, that's what it's all about. We want that feeling. We don't want to intellectualize just what expression is. We want to feel the expression. So. I would want students to think about all the aspects of their their preparation and their playing and 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 their concepts through the eyes of through the filter of does this resonate in my head or does it resonate in my heart? Mm. I like that very cerebral answer. <laughs> I liked it. It's a Tim Higgins special right there. Too many characters for a tweet. <laughs> <laughs> no, I I like that you're uh, you're leaving us with something to think about. That's fantastic. Well, yeah. thanks for having well, me, guys. Holy moly. Yeah. Oh, thanks Bye. for doing this. And uh, we we really appreciate your time, especially with being a, a new daddy. Oh, this is and... completely worth it. Always for you guys. <laughs> Always. I can't wait to be unlocked here and we can all get a beer. Yeah, no kidding. That sounds great to me. We should just share a beer right now after we wrap up. Works <laughs> for me. Yeah. It's a new normal. If you guys haven't been Tim. to the retreat, go. Go to the retreat. It's a special one. But, but, but Tim, Tim, Nick and I have been. I don't know what you're saying. <laughs> but have you been? Have you been? Oh, wow. <laughs> okay. So deep. <laughs> All right, Tim. Thanks. All right. Thank, thank you, you, guys. What a gentleman that Tim Higgins is. Yeah, I just imagine he's wearing a pair of suspenders. And he's he's got he's got an ascot on maybe. Oh wow! Very classy, making a fine cocktail. <laughs> well, definitely that. And at any time of day, yeah, it was it was great as always to talk to Tim. Tim's been a friend of mine for 
a number of years and you've known him even longer than I have. You've known him since high school, which is, it just goes to show how small this world is. Yeah. And, and I didn't really get a chance to really get to know him in depth like you have in, until a little later, but every interaction with him has been positive. He, he's a very thoughtful trombonist. He's a very thoughtful person. I still remember the first time I talked to him, we were hanging out at a bar. We had a mutual friend. It was when he was still in DC and he thought it was just super fascinating that I had studied with John Kitzman in the Dallas Symphony. And I think I was studying with David Finlayson at the time. It was before I started studying with James Markey. And he just thought that was fascinating. He was like, I would really like to hear how you sound because that's such a fascinating combination. And mm-hmm. it just kind of clued you in to the cerebral nature of him. And I thought that was why he'd be such a good guest in the interview. Nick, I actually had, I, I'm kind of curious how this whole experience has been for you. Obviously, it's affecting all of us as being people that perform for large groups in large gatherings. We're going to be the last people to get to right. start going back to work. Right. Um, and we're all kind of part of various organizations. And I feel like they've all kind of treated it a little differently. Some have treated it in a more surprising way as far as how they're taking care of musicians and how they're reacting, positive and negative. Um, I think mm-hmm. I think a lot of organizations are kind of showing their true colors right now. I know you had some uncertainty for a little bit with the groups you play in. Oh, I mean, it, it's been interesting. I don't think anyone can say, oh, man, it's been great. You know, that would be, <laughs> that'd be a lie. Yeah, it's been, you know, this is the longest I've gone, I think, since I've been 12 years old without playing with other people, you know, and that's a strange experience, especially when I'm just so used to almost every day playing either with an orchestra or at least playing with with a student or something like that having some personal interaction outside of not just socially but musically and i think that's been the, one of the weirdest things to adjust to just the open endedness of, of all this where we don't none of us know when we're going to be back to any sort of thing that resembles normal and i think that's that's tough to wrap your head around and so i think that has for me i've been like what you would call greatly unproductive musically i you know i've been i've been practicing some but i not as much as i like to or am used to but i'm kind of coming to terms with that's that's okay uh right now you know it's okay to be productive it's okay to not be productive it's whatever you need to do to just get through the day i still have music every day in my life because i teach i teach at bard college and i teach at manis and i teach at uh julia pre-college so i still have lessons and classes that i'm doing but obviously over zoom we're all very used to the uh... <laughs> yeah we're all used to the ups and downs and the positives and negatives of zoom but you know it's forced us all to get creative in different ways you know i've kind of given up on the live lessons on zoom and turned it more into having them submit recordings of them playing and then i'll just i'll make a video where i'm listening to them play and giving kind of live commentary over the video or the video or audio, depending on what they send me. And I find that to be much more, it's higher quality, but it's also easier to control. You know, you could have an awesome setup, but if you have like a little problem with your internet for a second, it's going to compress and get weird and get that Mm -hmm. garbly sound. And so it's been interesting, the places where we've all become creative, you know, some people with overdubbing projects, and some people with collaborations from distances and you know the the online teaching thing is definitely a place where everyone's had to be a little bit creative on how to make it work so that's been interesting but yeah actually i'm here in michigan in the town where the trombone retreat is i came here right when it hit the fan 
and I've been staying with my mom uh, and my, my wife's here too and keeping her company because she'd be alone otherwise. So that's that's been a silver lining to be here with her and, you know, outside of New York, which is just a little crazy right now. So I'm glad to be here. And uh, lately the golf course has opened up. So I've been playing nice. golf and I've been cooking up a storm. I've been cook- I love cooking for anyone who knows me. I love cooking. And- you should have a separate podcast just to talk about your cooking. <laughs> well, I I just before we started recording this, I was kneading dough, um, making making some sourdough like it seems like everyone is in the world right now. But I was into sourdough way before it was cool. <laughs> and tonight I'm making Indian food. Yeah. And my mom's birthday is this weekend. It's the same day as Mother's Day. So that's kind of a double whammy. Going to make some mussels and homemade French fries. And yeah, so it's been, I've been kind of channeling my creativity into cooking, not just because, you know, hey, someone's got to cook, we got to eat, but I, I like the creative aspect mm-hmm. of it. And I, I always have some sort of creative outlet, be it in music, cooking, or both. So right now I seem to lean a little bit towards cooking, but I know I'll circle back to music, produ- producing music in no time. I just, I think I needed just a little break, you know? Yeah, that's the thing. I think a lot of people put pressure on themselves, especially when you see people putting so much stuff online or or creating things constantly and it's really i mean facebook in general social media in general and you know we're as guilty as anyone you know the average person only posts like the top 10 percent of the things that are going on in their life you know they're not posting about like here's some toast i made you know i ate a weird egg salad sandwich and my stomach feels weird i you know i would would love to hear that story so i think you know It's been a lot of soul searching for me personally, Mm -hmm. and I've seen this as phases, you know, I think it's okay to have days where you're just not doing a lot. Sometimes I feel like I I need to hit that line to finally get, you know, thrown into creativity And, and just as easily as I can have one of those lazy days, I can have one of those days where I just I can't stop and I'm so excited about creating things. And so like you, I've just been trying to find ways to be excited and and you know, this podcast has been one of them. And just doing little projects has been a big, big thing. And just small victories, you don't have to look at everything as one day at a time, you can look at things in like a three day span, what am I going to try to accomplish in the next three days? Right. I think that's, that's helped me a lot. And just accepting new challenges, you know, one of the groups I play in besides the Pittsburgh Opera is the River City Brass Band here in Pittsburgh. It's a 28 piece British style brass band. It's been around for around 40 years, believe it or not. It has a pretty big following here. We travel all over the world. It's this whole thing that I had no clue about. I had no clue about what a British brass band really was, but it's actually been a really great job and I really enjoy it. I enjoy my colleagues. I enjoy the challenge of the repertoire and being in the front row and playing solo features all the time. But my music director asked me as part of the series he created called the Living Room Series to do a 30-minute live Facebook recital from my living room, which initially when you get asked that, you know, there's so many things that run through your mind. First of all, I've never done a live stream before. There's so many audio difficulties. There's so many things that could go wrong. Setting the levels, trying to find some unaccompanied pieces, trying to find pieces that will work with a piano where you can follow a piano and actually, you know, the piano is not responding to you. So something where you can actually guess where entrances should be. Yeah. Setting up the levels. So the recording actually hears the piano and you can hear it. I was using like a sound bar. 
So just a million things that could go wrong. Not to mention that you're performing for every single person you know on Facebook that could potentially listen. And my mindset, and I'd be curious to you know hear your thoughts on this. And we've talked about posting things before, and you've been a big proponent of posting things for a long time. You know, why do we do this? It's really easy as a musician in any stage you're in professionally, student still making it established professional, where your mindset is just kind of concerned about what other trombonists will think, what other musicians will think. And really, I came to the realization, it's just, this isn't about me. This isn't about impressing other trombonists. It's about all of our patrons. I designed this recital because I knew I only had a week. I designed this recital knowing the patrons of the River City Brass, what type of music they're used to. And I got some of the sweetest messages from friends of my mom or, (laughs) you know, elderly patrons that it would just made their day. And at the end of the day, that's what we're doing this for. There's such a huge amount of people out there that need art and art as a service. And how can we help people during this time? You know, it's so easy to get wrapped up in yourself and get nervous and think everything has to be perfect, but it really doesn't have to be perfect. And I did not play perfectly, but overall it could have been a lot worse and it brought more positive into the world. And I I welcomed the challenge and it was scary. It's a really weird big brother kind of experience when you're like, by yourself in your living room and you just look on your computer and there's a lot of people watching you. Yeah. <laughs> it's a weird thing. You said, why do we do this? I mean, just in general, it brought me to like, why do we post clips of ourselves playing? Why do we post live recitals? Why do we post uh, recorded recitals that we might have had? I think, yeah, I think you touched upon one aspect of it, which is that, you know, th- this is a service and we're, we're doing it for other people. But I also think that there is an element of when you put something out in the world, when you know it's going out into the world, it actually pushes you to become better because, you know, you don't want to, you know, put out something that sounds bad. (laughs) No one does, of course, but we all know this when we're under pressure and performing for other people, we heighten our awareness to the fine details more so than we might when we're practicing. And that brings me to another point. It's just when you do this more, I think it makes you practice different. I think it makes you prepare differently because you know that everything is going to be possibly scrutinized. So, you know, Mm -hmm. not that I think it's a, it's kind of the double-edged sword of being a musician is that there is constant criticism and you have to, if you shun that criticism, you're not going to do well in music necessarily because that's a huge part of what it is is being criticized, constantly trying to grow, constantly trying to get better. And if you can't take that criticism, then it might not be for you. So I right. think it pushes you to get comfortable in the discomfort. Like Jeremy Wilson, he has a great saying, which is hug the cactus. Have, have you heard that one? No, I like it though. But he talks about it like in reference to, I think a lot of things, but mainly with your practice. How, okay, maybe you have a beautiful sound and you're great, great at playing legato. Hey, maybe don't focus so much on your Bordonis because, hey, look over here, your articulation in the low range is terrible. So go towards the things that live in that discomfort, live in the place that's uncomfortable and you, it will become more comfortable. So I think this, this, it kind of branches out into 
many different places in your life, um, musically and non-musically, about bettering yourself as an artist, bettering yourself as a person by being able to look at criticism as some tool to help you grow rather than viewing it as something that hurts your ego. The ego. Right. The ego is something that will stop you from all progress in the world. Right. And if I, and it's a balance, right? You know, another favorite quote, Charles Barkley, uh, one of my favorite people is, is just never listen to the biggest, and I'm, you know, quoting it. It's probably not exactly right, but never listen to your harshest critics or your biggest supporters. The truth is usually somewhere in the middle. Um, yeah. and we can get bogged down with the self-criticism. And, and kind of my point is there's there's a line. And if I would have been like, well, I have to give a perfect recital that has to be incredible. I probably never would have done this. And if I didn't do it, then all these people that it brought, you know, positivity in their life or whatever would not have gotten to experience this because really it's not about, it's not about me. And if I had some nice moments in there that, that touch someone or connected with someone, that's, it's completely worth it. And, you know, we definitely have a lot of quantity now and that's another argument to be made. There's so much being posted. Right. Um, and you know, there's, there's a line of course, where it's, what I don't want to get into <laughs> some, well, I'll, some things. I'll, I'll, t- I'll touch upon it, you know, because you say it's not about you. Well, I would say it's 90, 95% not about you, but there is a you element to it that does need attention as far as pushing yourself to do something that you otherwise wouldn't do in a healthy way. And so I think, look, let's be honest here. This is, this is, uh, this is truth time with Sebastian and Nick, truth time. Shoot it to me straight. I'm gonna I'm gonna do a hot take. Hey, no one needs to nope. hear. No one, your, no one's listening at this point anyway. So say whatever you want. I know. No, no one needs to hear your acapella overdub of Bordoni number four. Man, no one needs to hear it. <laughs> um, but that you know, I'm not saying I'm not saying you shouldn't do it. That's actually the opposite of what I mean. You should do some of that because it. Hey, look, this might be a, a moment for you to learn how to do something like that. So. If you do it with Bordoni number four, you post it up there and someone could say, hey, good job. What have you tried doing this? Have you tried changing this setting? Have you tried? And then, you know, you can actually get better at doing this, this thing and collaborate with other people and and grow from there. So it's not about the initial product. Sometimes it's about putting yourself out there to grow. Mm-hmm. And definitely. Yeah. Okay. So I, I'm, I'm kind of picking on the Bordoni number four right now because I think I've heard like 20 different versions of it, but, um, but devil's advocate, what if that Bordoni number four makes your grandmama cry? Cause it's so beautiful. Well, then you put that out there and say, this one's for you, Nana. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, there's all sorts of purposes. And at the end of the day, what helped me in the moment, you know, and, and I think, this relates to reasons why we get nervous. What helped me in the moment was taking myself out of it as best I could, my ego out of it as best I could, and remembering, you know, our patrons who 90% of them donated their ticket, their tickets back mm-hmm. uh, for canceled concerts to help support the organization. And that, you know, okay, this isn't perfect. It's not going to sound as amazing as it would live. Something might go wrong. I might chip a few notes, but if it helps someone get through their day or does something interesting, then that's what it's for. You know, that's why we do this. It's not to 
solely impress people. And like Nick says, it can be a, an incredible tool to put some pressure on yourself to grow. Yeah. Yeah. Well, circling back to Mr. Timothy Higgins. Um, yes. One thing I wanted to touch upon is, you know, the it's, it's important right now is the future of classical music. And we don't know what that's going to look like. None of us do, but we have to try to remain positive about it. Positive yet realistic. You know, I think it's going to change. I think it's going to be different, at least in the short term. But people need it. People need this in their life. And so I don't think it's going anywhere. I just think it's going to look a little different. I think I think the concert venues are going to look different. I think the programming is going to have to look different for various reasons. But I like the way he looks at it. I like the honest and optimistic way that he looks at this world that we all live in. And I think that that's the sort of person I want to put my money on. I hope I hope he's right. And I think that if we have more people thinking like he does about the future of music, then, you know, the people in control that control the purse strings, let's let's put it that way. I think then we're going to be in a better, better shape than someone that just is all doom and gloom because he's not just all rainbows and butterflies you know there's a lot of there's there's honesty in in what he has to say about the future of music but it's also very optimistic in the realm of realistic so absolutely and and it's just like kind of what we talk about the retreat there's so much room for creativity in our field you see this in the examples he talked about with the san francisco symphony and what they're doing and oftentimes you see when terrible things like this happen as far as the quarantine happening Sometimes you see some of the greatest things emerge from it. You see a lot of creativity. You see a lot of innovation, new ways of reaching audiences, new ways to use our medium to make the world a better place. I think we're both optimists deep down, and Mm -hmm. we believe that there's always a new way. If you believe in what you're doing, I mean, there's always a way to, to connect with someone. And I think that's, at the end of the day, getting back to the art as a service thing, as long as I think your head's in the right place and you're not afraid of the work. I think anything positive can happen. Sure. Yeah. And so I just, uh, the last thing I want to touch on is the awesome project that he's getting to do, which is to write and premiere his own concerto with the San Francisco symphony. I mean, that's totally unprecedented on any level of, of, of our field, let alone at the top level, the, absolute pinnacle of orchestras and the art form. I would say that that's a lucky experience he gets to have, but it, I don't think luck got him to no way. where he is. It's, it's hard work and talent, you know, and what is talent, but hard work. I think they're, they're the same thing. I, I think that a lot of talent is just a lot of hard work in disguise. Mm-hmm. Oh, and we, we also need to mention he has an album called stage left. Mm-hmm that I believe you can find everywhere, at least on his website, which is a really awesome recording that you should definitely check out. You know, we got a little sliver, we got a little slice of Tim Higgins and Mm. I love me a a slice of Tim Higgins pie. (laughs) Uh, Thanks for, thanks for hanging out with us again. So let's, I think we should just keep going with our tagline, but should we both say at the same time? Should we just like retreat yourself or should I say retreat and you say yourself? No, we do it together. One, two, three. Retreat yourself. yourself.